Oh, wow. Hello, everyone. Good evening, and welcome to Pin Drop at BAFTA 195. It's a really great pleasure to be here in this iconic institution and welcome you here. So thanks very much for coming. Um, before I introduce our very special guest for this evening, um, I'd just like to take a, this opportunity to tell you a little bit about who we are. Um, I'm Simon Oldfield, co-founder of Pindrop, and together with the award-winning author and journalist Elizabeth Day, we formed Pindrop to showcase the best in short fiction. Our ethos is a simple one. We present short stories read in their entirety by leading authors and actors, and our highlights have been many, from Stephen Fry at the Royal Academy of Arts, Julian Barnes at Dr. Johnson's House, and William Boyd here at BAFTA 195. So it's an absolute pleasure to introduce the award-winning, best-selling author, Lionel Shriver, to BAFTA 195. Thank you. Um, one moment, though. <laughs> um, her amazing new book, The Mandibles, has garnered excellent reviews. Um, we're going to hear a short extract from that later on today. Um, but she's also written extraordinary novels, We Need to Talk About Kevin, which many of you will be familiar with, adapted into a film starring Tilda Swinton, um, to an you know, amazing film, which I personally really loved. And Lionel is also an extraordinary short story writer. In 2014, she won the BBC National Short Story Award. And this evening, she's going to be reading for us exclusively an unpublished short-ish story <laughs> called The Chapstick. Um, it's a great story, and I hope you really enjoy it. Um, so, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please tune in your ears and welcome to the stage, Lionel Shriver. Well done. Now, I want to go on the record uh, right away that uh, I made an original bid to only read half this story, and I was told, as Simon said, that they... This audience expects complete stories. So if this puts you to sleep, it's not my fault. <laughs> anyway, you're going to have to pretend that you're enjoying it, because uh, not only did I just find out, find out yesterday that uh, The Mandibles has made the top 10 bestseller list. Yes. <laughs> But to pull out all the stops, it's my birthday. <laughs> now, the story I want to read to you today is called The Chapstick. And the moral of that story is that you do not want to go through airport security with Lionel Shriver <laughs> or even one of her characters. The logic was faulty, expressing his reluctance to take this trip by leaving late for the airport. Dropping everything to fly to Raleigh-Durham was only worsened by traveling under stress. Peter Demick's having called his regular Brooklyn car service 45 minutes after he should have been throwing his bag in the Pratt driver's trunk failed utterly to communicate any resentment to his father. That foot dragging in his Clinton Hill walk-up clearing off coffee mugs that would have waited until his return, had merely ensured that now Peter would agitate in the back seat en route. Unable to concentrate on the headlines, he closed the CNN app, 
shooting glances at the time blinking on the sedan's dashboard while glaring at the congestion on Atlantic. The jittering of his knee was probably driving the cabbie nuts, but he couldn't seem to stop. It would have been one thing to have announced firmly to his father's live-in home health aide, an illegal immigrant from Honduras paid in cash. This was America, after all, rich in its unique cultural traditions. <laughs> that he had heard this death's door business before, and this time he wasn't coming. To instead merely to cut it close on catching the flight was like being passive aggressive with yourself. <laughs> when you fly, the driver asked. 810, JetBlue, Terminal 5. It was a stupid departure time, putting him smack in rush hour on the way to a stupid airport. But mid-evening from JFK was the only semi-affordable ticket he could scrounge at the last minute. I'm running late, obviously, but with this traffic, there's no point in telling you to step on it. It was already nearing six o'clock, and they couldn't have gone more than half a mile. You go to Raleigh. Grew up there, Peter added gruffly, grateful that a Pakistani wouldn't have the ear or interest, and so wouldn't comment on his passenger's lack of a Tar Heel drawl. It was a boring conversation. East Warmer, then New York? That was an even more boring conversation, earning only a grunt. My father's dying, Peter segued, supposedly, one more time. He'd undercut the violin section, not wanting to be misread as bidding for sympathy. So sorry, the driver said lamely. Although eventually, it really is a wolf, isn't it? Peter supposed. Silence sufficed to indicate that the driver didn't get the illusion. For all Peter's skepticism, something told him that this time it was the wolf. If he hadn't left for the airport so late, he might have afforded a little reflection on how he felt. In his heyday, Daniel Dimmock was the acknowledged father of modern dialysis. Working circa 1960 at the embryonic form of what was now North Carolina's vast and internationally acclaimed research triangle park, he designed the revolutionary Dimmock shunt, a mechanism that Peter still didn't understand at 58. Peter was not an idiot. He had failed to understand it on purpose. Had the shunt been developed and patented through a commercial company rather than at a publicly funded nonprofit, Dr. Dimmock might have become a wealthy man, which the august medical researcher had noted himself a few hundred times. These many years after the man's retirement, Peter still couldn't assess with any confidence his father's importance in the wider world. In the small pond of renal research, his father had been a whale. Whether that made him a guppy in the ocean of human achievement or more like a grouper was anyone's guess. In any event, Peter had been awed as a boy. He felt wistful about the adoration now, which he wouldn't have wanted to sustain into a fawning adulthood, but might have liked to revisit, like sampling one sumptuous bite of a cream bun, otherwise sickly sweet for a mature palate. 
He'd boasted to third grade classmates that his father wasn't a plain old doctor, but more like a mad scientist. Maybe it was the post-A-bomb paranoia, but in those days, all scientists were mad. His father was lean, vigorous, and busy. And when you were a kid, or at least back then, nothing made grown-ups more impressive than the fact that they ignored you. See, Dodd hadn't been a cruel father. He was oblivious, which was worse. At least cruelty entailed paying attention of a kind. Funny that Dodd, the tag still cheered him. All three kids had been schooled to call him father, a formal old-fashioned term of address for the 1960s whose associations were too reverent, as in father of modern dialysis. Father was what bedraggled, browbeaten children called their stern religious fundamentalist papas in grim black and white art movies. Yes, father. No, father. Of course you're right, father. This dress is much too bright and whorish. What was I thinking? <laughs> His older brother, Luke, started it. Since Daniel Oliver Dimmock signed cryptic, bossy notes to their mother, D.O.D., his kids seized on the acronym, which outsiders often misheard as a snooty pronunciation of dad, and which Luke, when coming up against paternal opposition as a teenager, elongated to Department of Defense. An early discovery of childhood is the power of, of naming one of the few weapons at the disposal of short people in the absence of capital, clout, or brawn. For Peter and his siblings, the rechristening of father was a rare victory for their team, an impish pushback that Dodd had never quite decided was insolent or affectionate when it was both. As a son, Peter had traveled an arc from awe to disenchantment, that was probably not yet complete with Dodd on the cusp of oblivion at 92. The filial disappointment wasn't sourced in parental neglect, standard for family men married around 1950. It wasn't as if his father had turned out to be a rather bad researcher either who did flawed work that killed people or something. There was no scandal, no embezzling of funds, no grievous private shortcoming like a gambling addiction or a propensity for domestic violence fatally offset public accomplishment. Be that as it may, the man often stayed late at the lab without bothering to pick up the phone while his wife's lovingly prepared dinners would dry and char. He treated his children like annoyances, whom their mother hurriedly issued out of the way when he did come home. Conversation was dominated by which prestigious journal had accepted a paper, which colleague had cited his research, which medical conference had invited the great man to speak. He was competitive with his lab partners and shamelessly voiced satisfaction when their experiments failed. If grant funding fell through, he didn't mourn the fact that a vital line of clinical inquiry would now not be pursued but raged back and forth in the living room at the personal affront. Would I have signed off on that application if it didn't have merit? 
did those pinheads at the NIH ever notice that my name was on the title page? Thus by his latter teens, Peter had begun to register that his father wasn't a plain old doctor. Because while the guy might have a taste for protégés, accolades, and subordinates, he had little time for needy, smelly patients, much less for people as a, as a broader class. The development of effective dialysis that could be re repeated year on year was a technical challenge. Likewise, the refinement of a smaller, more portable machine that could be employed in domestic settings. What mattered to Dodd was not the alleviation of suffering, but that if suffering was alleviated, Daniel Dimmock would get the credit. Renal research was of value because he was good at it, and the field was merely a mirror for the reflection of glory. The man was driven solely by self-aggrandizement. By middle age, Peter had tried to gentle the harshness of this assessment. Most high achievers he'd encountered were powered primarily by narcissism, varying largely in their capacity to conceal it. But a boy's disappointment that his father was not, after all, a life-saving crusader, but a small-minded egotist, had never quite lost its bitter bite. Peter was eternally astonished that megalomaniacs like Dodd got away with acting like God's gift. You'd think that somewhere along the line, someone would tell them to stuff it. But they always got away with it. The more egregious their behavior, the more they convinced others that they must really be extraordinary, or long ago, someone else would have told them to stuff it. Moreover, Peter sympathized with children unduly pressured to manifest their parents' hopes for them. But that was surely an improvement on a father who had no hopes for his children. For Daniel Dimmock had never displayed an appetite for handing on the generational baton. Though all three of his kids had the grades and SAT scores to make a bid for the Ivy League, he'd encouraged Luke, Esther, and Peter to take advantage of in-state tuition at local public colleges, when he himself had gone to Stanford. He didn't urge any of them to take on the big professions, law, the sciences, but promoted community service jobs like nursing or school teaching. Even these days, he never watched Luke's packages online, checked out clients' enthusiastic reviews on Peter's webpage, or saved Esther's full-page profile in the business section of the News and Observer to boast about to friends. The good doctor had no intention of abdicating his position as center of the familial universe, at however advanced an age. It couldn't have been coincidental that both boys were baptized with New Testament Christian names. They were raised to be apostles. Peter had undertaken the first of these missions of mercy to North Carolina after their father, then 86, had fallen from a ladder while cleaning the gutters and broken his hip. A cliched beginning of the end, and therefore opportunity to make the transition from settling the estate after the inevitable occurred as graceful as possible. Once Luke had flown in from Seattle and Esther from Beijing, the siblings conferred back at the house in Woodrow Park while their father was laid up in Rex Hospital. 
Peter's brother and sister were in accord. In order to oversee their father's finances during a convalescence fated to end badly, Peter should get power of attorney. Esther was a poor candidate for the post, having moved to China. A television journalist who covered quirky, uplifting, feel-good stories for local news in Washington state, Luke was often on the road and was glad to pass on the aggravation of paying household bills and managing investments. Besides, Peter had already been named the executor in their parents' will. Like the decision to dub him executor, the fact that their father proved willing to give his youngest access to his accounts was a compliment, theoretically. A thriving consultant who helped American companies negotiate a foreign and no little devious business culture, Esther had further anchored herself to Beijing by marrying a native entrepreneur, thereby consigning herself to irrelevance in Raleigh. As the eldest, Luke might conventionally have stewarded their surviving parents' affairs, despite living farther away. In the online world, Seattle and Brooklyn were right next door. Yet from childhood, Luke had exhibited a chameleon side, an unsettling capacity for being all things to all people, which is how he got away with presenting dog-riddled Pollyanna Patchett which is how he got away with presenting dog-riddled Pollyanna packages about the finer side of human nature rising in the face of adversity when privately he was a cynic. He wasn't precisely a pleaser, which would have entailed actually pleasing people. He was a manipulator, which entailed seeming to please people. And there was a thin line between chameleon and liar. Given this lifelong slipperiness, an emphasis on self-presentation, behind which lurked what no one in the family was ever quite sure, neither their father nor their late mother entirely trusted Luke. Both parents regarded Peter as the moral anchor of their triad, the decent, dependable, faithful one to whom it would never occur to take advantage of power of attorney by charging personal expenses to his father's credit card. Who wouldn't consider even for a fleeting instant, discreetly siphoning off a couple of hundred grand in executor fees, about which his siblings would never be the wiser. Glowering at the haloed taillights of the sedulous traffic on South Conduit, it was starting to sleet. Peter wondered if being anointed as the trustworthy one wasn't a shade unpleasant. If he really wouldn't abuse his legal position to self-deal, and he hadn't. The bovine rectitude suggested a lack of imagination. The expectation that, of course, little Peter would unerringly toe the line also imputed to the youngest a cowed quality. If nothing else, a paralytic dread of being caught. In pictures of Peter as a boy, his mouth dropped tremulously open, his eyes widened with credulity, their pupils cringing. He'd been the weakest of the litter, the mama's boy, the crybaby on the first day of school. His parents had chosen their lastborn to execute their will because he was the tractable one and would do their bidding. The older two were more rebellious, more mischievous, less respectful, God love them. 
and therefore it didn't take a psychological genius to decode. More independent, more visionary, and less bludgeoned into submission to the father of modern dialysis. Whereas Peter was too timid to stray from the path of righteousness, he wouldn't have the moxie to write himself checks on his father's account, lest lightning strike him dead. Being trusted was an insult. Yet Peter Dimmock was 58 years old, and that quivering portrait from first grade, which had mocked him from the frame of his parents' buffet for decades, was out of date. He was a larger, more muscular man than his older brother, who didn't work out, and was starting to look puffy on camera. In adulthood, Peter had developed a temper that sometimes got him into trouble, though it was the return of his primary school timorousness, not wrath, that he blamed for the recent demise of his second marriage. June had steadily lost respect for her husband the longer he stepped and fetched for her father-in-law. Or maybe that wasn't the main reason she walked out, but it didn't help. When first awarded power of attorney, Peter had felt a quiet sense of victory. In running his father's logistical life, he would turn the tables, take control, all in preparation for receiving a baton that at last the man couldn't withhold. At the time, Peter had estimated that his ailing father would last six months at the outside, just long enough to get the old man's affairs in orders, in order to consolidate his assets, locate the house deeds and car registration, learn his passwords, and solicit a list of the music he preferred for the funeral in a spirit of discomfiture and sorrow. It had now been six years. <laughs> Apparently, the aged usually don't recover from broken hips, just as it's usually the daughters who squander their primes caring for elderly parents and tell that to Esther the wheeler dealer in Beijing. Dodd was Peter's problem, and his brother and sister were ever so keen that he remain Peter's problem. When first embarking on his fiduciary duties, Peter had been eager to demonstrate his competencies in hopes that his father would be impressed. When his mother died three years earlier, he'd lost his champion, who long claimed that her second son's problem was having too many talents. Perhaps she was right, since you were far better off with only one talent. Coddling her youngest, his mother had encouraged Peter to nurse all manner of arty, unrealistic ambitions, while he was also, of the three, the least likely to develop the, resi the resilient ego that pursued... <sighs> Let's go back. <laughs> Coddling her youngest. His mother had encouraged Peter to nurse all manner of arty, unrealistic ambitions, while he was also, of the three, the least likely to develop the resilient ego that pursuing arty ambitions with any success required. He tried acting at UNC Chapel Hill, though he was easily crushed by failed auditions. He hoped that his performances were subtle, but in retrospect, a better word was flat. A descriptor that at least didn't apply to his superlative intonation but doing wedding gigs after college with a killing barbershop quartet hardly paved the way to a career. When he turned to film scripts, 
His dialogue was sharp, or what a hired editor called clever. But he never registered that it was a visual medium in which something was supposed to happen that you could see. Finally, in his 30s, he converted shame to enterprise. Having been cured of a childhood lisp by a sympathetic young man trained in the field, Peter qualified as a speech therapist. It was a humble occupation, which didn't transform renal medicine for all time, but did make a difference to individual stutterers and stroke patients. For a sense of importance, he leveraged his small usefulness by plying his trade in what, for a self-exiled North Carolinian, was still the greatest city in the world. Dodd had never acted overtly disappointed by Peter, how Peter turned out, but he wasn't exactly wowed. Yet you don't readily impress as an underling. Power of attorney hadn't conferred conquest of any sort. It had designated Peter his father's errand boy. Daniel Dimmock had been accustomed to secretaries and lab assistants his whole professional life, and ordering his son around instead came naturally. Peter's position as paternal flunky fostered the very timidity threaded through his DNA that he most despised about himself. Overcompensating, he'd pick fights with June, shouting and breaking things. That didn't impress either. The near invalid didn't have much to fill his day, so he spent much of it hectoring Peter down the line from command and control, the, that grand leather-inlaid desk in the study plastered with framed degrees and commendations. When Dodd ran him ragged with demands for a stairlift repair or a more adjustable ch shower chair, Peter swallowed his impatience and th thanked God for online shopping. Many of Dodd's requests were pretextual, outliving multiple friends and colleagues, having avoided the drooling imbeciles of a nursing home, and tended by aides who barely spoke English. He'd few people to talk to. By a good measure, then, Peter spent more time speaking to his father than keeping in touch with his own two kids. One price when the Raleigh calls were protracted. The pernicious return of the uplilting southern accent that this proudly reconditioned New Yorker had shed. So contaminated, Peter had actually referred to an Upper East Side client's family as y'all. <laughs> While not clinically demented, Dodd did relentlessly repeat himself and he would get exercised about the loss of small objects blamed on sticky-fingered caretakers that he'd merely mislaid. Why in this day and age would a semi-illiterate steal a fountain pen? When Dodd alienated still another live-in-aid by being accusatory, dictatorial, and unappreciative, Peter would numbly contact the Latino Community Center on New Hope Church Road, where another off-the-books unfortunate could be found. Meanwhile, up in New York, each new medical crisis involved rescheduling a raft of therapy appointments with clients whom a freelancer could not afford to lose in order for Peter, who was also his father's healthcare proxy, to streak down south on flights like the one he was now in danger of missing. Peter hadn't been running things he'd been run. He did his father's taxes. He hired his father's gardener. If only to service his father's vanity, he kept the retired medical researcher's AMA membership paid up. 
he ordered his father a Smithfield ham every Christmas. He'd put his own personal life and career on hold while his siblings got off with rare distracted Skype chats. For all his manly biceps, Peter remained the little boy in that first grade photo, frightened and meek, submissive and obedient. Arriving at Terminal 5 by 7.05 p.m. was little short of a miracle. Peter had 25 minutes before the flight would board, and he checked, on, checked in online, rolling only carry-on. He should be able to squeak into the flight just. It all depended on security. My intro was a little foreshadowing. <laughs> the line wasn't bad. February wasn't a month for heavy travel. He made a futile effort to repress his compulsive incredulity that every day millions of people were forced to go through this elaborate tedium of queuing, disrobing, and x-raying because of the freakishly high likelihood that passengers will blow up their own planes. Don't say blow up, not even in a mumble. In other walks of life, the same assumptions about humanity's poor sense of self-preservation would dictate high fences along every curb, lest pedestrians hurl themselves en masse into oncoming traffic. Or you wouldn't even allow such a thing as cars, which drivers would obviously plow blindly into concrete stanchions the moment your back was turned. Enough. For the rest of this journey, he should focus on its purpose. False alarms had inured him to this errand. But this time, it was pneumonia. Or ammonia, as Dodd had croaked on the phone, one of several recent slips. If by now Peter might find in his father's passing an element of relief, ample time remained to admit as much in the years to come. Just now, he should prepare for grief. In a line full of seasoned flyers, there was always one moron who waited until the last minute to pull all the crap from his luggage and held everyone up. Before he'd had any first-hand experience of the parental fade to black, Peter would have imagined a softening, a rounding of edges on the part of both parent and erstwhile child, as if both parties were scoops of ice cream placed for a benedictory moment in the sun, and all the rumples, ridges, and rills smoothed to leave uniform balls of benevolence. To the contrary. The aged seemed to seize only more stiffly into who and what they had always been. Their rumples got bumpier, their ridges peaked, their rills ran deeper. So that if you could compare them to ice cream, it was more to the sort so hard that you couldn't ram a spoon in the carton. Into his dotage, ever more vainglorious, Dodd was bafflingly unembarrassed by neighbors bringing pies, church congregants doing his grocery shopping, and volunteers from age-related charities replacing the rotten floorboards on his porch. He took the obeisance as his due. These many gestures would have constituted karmic goes-around, comes-around, had the imperious codger ever done for others himself. But Daniel Dimmock had never in his life run chores for the elderly, much less baked anyone a pie. 
more disconcertingly still, far from softening himself, far from gaining a sense of perspective on a father's minor failings, which he might soon recall with a backhanded tenderness. Ever since yesterday's phone call from Raleigh, Peter had flushed with waves of rage. The one giveaway that he did seem to believe that this time his father wasn't planning on an encore. It was as if in the next day or two he had to fit in all the fury he'd suppressed for decades because once his father was dead, there'd be nothing to do with it. The way you scurry about duty-free, spending the last of your foreign coinage on chocolate. There wasn't any earthly point to fuming at a corpse. Since Peter had been through this dash to bid farewell several times, with its customary saying of last things, it would seem unlikely that there were any last things left to say. Nevertheless, his head roiled with speeches, and they resembled nothing like, Dodd, you've set such a fine example of a life well-lived, and Esther, Luke, and I have always been grateful to enjoy such a, an accomplished, brilliant, distinguished, imposing, Whatever. Since that fathead hardly needed another compliment. Instead, Peter pictured railing at his father's bedside. Whatever made you think you're so special? You never batted an eye at the hours and hours I spent, days, weeks even, arranging for your whole ground floor to be wheelchair ramped in preparation for your return home with that hip and getting the master bathroom ripped out, railed and installed with a roll-in shower. I still have a life, or I did. I have kids who are young adults and need my counsel, but no, I have to fly back to Raleigh. You know, I finally looked up the Dimmick shunt online and it turns out that nobody uses it anymore. So you did your part for renal medicine back in the day, a day over 50 years ago. What of it? Esther learned Chinese. CEOs of massive American companies ask your daughter for her advice. Esther is important. Luke is on TV. For that matter, why was it always so important to you to be important? Me, I may not have changed history or pulled in the big bucks, but at least I have a feel for other people, don't I? Since it's hardly a surprise that as an MD, you never worked with flesh and blood patients, more drooling imbeciles you might have actually had to talk to. And my clients like me, believe it or not, and they get better. They learn to speak more clearly. They remember more words or get them out without sputtering. And afterwards, they're thankful. Sir, <laughs> you're up, nudged the woman behind him, not unkindly. Oh, sorry. Peter placed a premium on competent air travel and hurried to remove his tablet. The justification for the standard procedure opaque, he provided the iPad its own separate giant gray tray. He fished out his cell, change, and keys. He removed his overcoat, folding his sports jacket neatly beside it. Though its modest buckle shouldn't have set off the detector, he slid his belt through the loops and nestled it by the coats in a tidy coil. From the same prudence, he unstrapped his slender watch. He tugged off his shoes, ruining the second-day socks. He pulled out his Ziploc, no larger than one quart size, 
containing shampoo, deodorant, and toothpaste, no more than 3.4 ounces or 100 milliliters, making sure to put the baggie, per the usual specifications, on top of his overcoat, despite the fact that the stupid baggie is going into a goddamn x-ray. Okay, yes, true. During this calm, methodic execution of his duties as a responsible flyer, who completely understood that all of these precautionary imperatives were only contrived for the safety of himself and his fellow passengers, he did feel a teensy-weensy twinge of irritation. <laughs> the liquids protocol was inane. It had been roundly demonstrated that determined malefactors could concoct a successful science fair project with miniatures. Worse, the tiny bottles so consumed TSA agents who took a malicious pleasure in confiscating costly moisturizers of 3.5 ounces <laughs> that they forgot entirely to look for detonators wired to big, big wads of Sentex. That was why the agency finally lifted the ban on cigarette lighters and carry-on luggage. In test runs, its officers found the lighters all right, but left the guns. <laughs> and by the way, that is true. Having long before committed the drill to heart, Peter scanned all the signage anyway. No sharp objects, explosive, or firearms to confirm that he'd been fully compliant. It was a creepy word beloved of authorities everywhere, who treasured its ambiance of simpering eagerness to please, spineless groveling, worm-like subservience, and pants-wetting terror. Compliance admitted of no resistance. If you pictured the word as a thing, it was floppy and flaccid and on the floor. Raising a hand to the folks behind him in an apology that he hadn't initiated this strip tease in more advance, Peter rushed his four plastic trays down the rollers, while opposite, a languid TSA agent with bright green nails looked on sullenly, blah-blahing in a monotone about liquids and gels. Once the last tray got traction on the rubber belt, he gave his pockets a nervous extra pat for a nail clipper or stray quarter. Another agent waved him wordlessly to the scanner, the guy's only job. Nice work if you could get it. The curved, clear plastic doors opened a la Star Trek elevator. This whole clunky pod thing had that cheap, knock-together look of a set for 1960s television. Peter assumed the position, fitting his socks into the blobby footprints, lifting his arms in submission. He'd read in the Times a while back that these machines were rarely serviced, and the quantity of whatever carcinogenic rays they shot through you was frequently off the charts. For a while thereafter, he had insisted on being a male opt-out, delighting in putting staff to the extra trouble of a pat-down. But the thrill had worn off. They'd snap on latex gloves as if he carried some disease, clearly put out by this asshole who couldn't get with the program, while feigning all that respectfulness. Now, I'm going to run only the back of my hand down your inseams. At some point, a bubbly TSA officer had assured him that 
All those old health concerns had been seen to, and now advanced imaging technology was perfectly safe. He had no reason to believe her. Yet from laziness, as well as resignation, because in the end, the tyrants of anti-terrorism would always triumph. Ever since, he'd been compliant. Over here, sir. What? The African-American agent who issued him off to the side would not have looked nearly as fat if her pants weren't so tight. <laughs> Their waist bit at an unflattering point, cutting under rather than containing her stomach. <laughs> the uninflected flatness of her voice reminded Peter of his subtle acting in college. Had his mind not been clamorous with that saying of last things, he might have noticed. Perhaps both too far into her shift and not so advanced into her workday as to be cheered by the proximity of its conclusion, this youngish federal employee exuded the kind of boredom that is dangerous. <laughs> Raise your arms, sir. Peter was stymied. He'd taken out his tablet, removed his coats and shoes and change and keys, put his uselessly midget toiletries in that insipid baggie, surrendered, his, surrendered in stocking feet in their unconvincing plastic pod, and now there was still more procedure more insincere suspicion, more cheek-spreading Simon Says, more mother may I. Fair enough, he duly thrust out his arms on either side, as if to do that minute arm circle exercise that looked lame but made your shoulders ache like a mother. <laughs> Yet he allow, also allowed himself to say aloud, along with the suggestion of an eye roll, albeit brief and certainly not overdone, Oh, for Pete's sake. And that was a big mistake. <laughs> for two reasons. The first being obvious, since the cardinal rule of air travel was keep your head down. It was as if he'd barely survived a mass murder and had been lying motionless amidst the bodies. But rather than continue to play dead and emitting, oh, for Pete's sake, he had effectively leapt up and shouted, wait, over here, you missed one. <laughs> the second reason Peter knew the grumble would prove a grave misjudgment was neurological. It connected mind with mouth. At airport security, your sole protection from capricious persecution, arbitrary search and seizure, an indefinite detention without charge was the privacy of your head. An eternal infuriation for enforcers of every sort. It was possible to entertain a riot of apostasy, sedition, and mutinous insult. Your pants make you look fat. So long as these unacceptable sentiments were neatly contained between ear right and ear left, but this small, rounded safe house couldn't have any holes. To continue to provide a bouncy castle where a host of emotions lethal in the open air, disgust, contempt, derision, could gleefully and imperviously leap, carouse, and interplay, the cerebrum had to remain hermetically sealed. 
where the brain most commonly sprang a leak was around the upper and lower jaws. With a warning glare after that, for Pete's sake, impertinence, the TSA agent began tracing his spread legs and outstretched arms with a plastic, black plastic wand, which, like all their other kit, looked phony. It recalled those IED divining gizmos some shyster sold to the Iraqi army, in which its soldiers continued to place a superstitious faith at checkpoints even after the implement had been exposed as containing nothing but an unactivated credit card. Alas, once mind was fatally connected with mouth, it was the Dickens to close the valve. So the self-preservational part of Peter that kept him from, say, hurling himself into traffic or blowing up his own plane, not that he would even think the words like blowing up and plane, tried frantically to summon his mental plumbers. Hurry, this is an emergency. I need to shut the fuck up. But until his cranial tradesman answered the call, the back sass percolating through his skull would dribble right into Terminal 5. But I already took out all the coins and the keys, Peter objected, his tone perhaps not overtly hostile, but certainly a tad testy, when it should have been obliging, obsequious, sniveling even, and a far better line of attack would have run something like, I'm so sorry, officer. I seem to have made some grievous error that is all my fault, and I richly regret putting you to any unnecessary extra trouble. This scanner isn't a metal detector, she droned. Well, which he knew, really, he supposed. He hadn't been focused. Getting that wrong was flustering. Fluster being belonging to a disadvantageous camp of sensations, along with frazzle and frustration, the very antithesis of what was required, perfect self-control. So when she ordered, empty your pocket, sir, there was no please. He didn't say, oh, yes, certainly, sorry. Whatever did I forget about why, you poor officers, you must get so tired of us ditzy passengers never getting the procedure right no matter how many times we go through this. But... I did everything I was supposed to. If on top of the iPad and the shoes and the coats, the keys and the change and the belts, you're also supposed to completely and utterly empty all your pockets of absolutely everything, down to the fluff and the threads and the grit, the signs, or at least one of the officers out front should have said so. In concert with this inadvisable, disquisition. Peter was indeed emptying his pockets. He was complying. But within reach, there was no table or surface of any sort on which to pile what little he could scrounge from his jeans. A crumple of dollar bills, a used tissue, a plastic unbreakable comb bent by the curve of his, his buttock. In the watch pocket, perhaps having gone through the wash, an individually wrapped, long-forgotten cool blue mint soft and turning white. This afternoon's to-do list, take out trash, check in online, pick up and freeze usual small junior's cheesecake for Dodd, even if he won't live to eat it. Two tablets of Tylenol and a scrap of saran wrap in case of a headache, now a virtual certainty. 
So he put the detritus on the floor. Since there really was nowhere else to put the stuff, it was remotely possible that the functionary might have forgiven his depository of choice had he stooped to display his, these miserable wares in a suitably cringing spirit. While he certainly wasn't acting cowed, Peter would still have characterized himself as merely placing these offerings at the official's feet. Yet perhaps an observer who described him instead as slamming the wad of singles onto the linoleum would only have been exaggerating by an increment or two. Her boredom moderated by a hint of relish, the plump overseer cried, Supervisor! <laughs> Just then, Peter made a connection between a last lump at the very bottom of his right front pocket and the scanner's output screen, on which a bland outline of a figure in a posture of surrender was accented by a single red spot on one thigh, like a child's representation of a boo-boo. His fingers closed around the source of all this nonsense. A chapstick. That was the boo-boo. By the time the supervisor showed up, a swaggering 30-ish black guy in dreadlocks, oh great, this encounter had every capacity to escalate into a race matter. Peter had placed the offending item amidst the sad little pile of paper and plastic wrap on the floor, which looked so like trash that next he'd be accused of littering. He'd resumed his feet spread stanch and because, after all, he had never been given permission to put them back down, thrust his arms back out, fingers outstretched, once again in seeming preparation for arm circles. You got a problem, mister? The supervisor challenged, coming an intimidating inch or so too close. You gonna be my problem? No, sir, Peter said, judging his chin, but not in the man's direction. Avoiding the superior's gaze, he trained his own at a 45-degree angle to the agent's face. Absurdly, he kept his arms extended. Bend over backwards, obedience could double as defiance. I've done everything that was asked of me, sir. You gonna pick that stuff up off the flow? Yes, sir. If you say so, sir but I was ordered to take everything out of my pockets, sir. Peter had seen enough boot camp movies to bark rigidly at attention like a green recruit. You in my house, the man purred, taking another step, half step into Peter's personal space. Don't disrespect me in my house. Peter couldn't help it. The mental plumbers had never shown up. Begging your pardon, sir. With all due respect, sir. This is not your house, sir. This is a public airport, sir. So that was that. Allowed to scoop up his Kleenex, his to-do list, his chapstick, Peter was issued off to the little white room. In the Islamic State not long before, several women of Raqqa had been whipped for cladding themselves in abayas that were too tight and for wearing Western makeup. 
But more than one immodest captive was given five extra lashes for not being meek enough when detained. Thus for Peter, any agitation or even the very fraudulent deference of which TSA agents themselves were masters had now given way to a rueful, solitary repose. Holding the specimen between thumb and middle finger, Peter Dimmock contemplated the source of his undoing. The chapstick was the original kind, whose black and white wrapper had not changed appreciably in his lifetime. He never bought the brand's more innovative lip balms, not only tame variants like spearmint and strawberry, but candy cane or cake batter. Because his father had always used the original flavor, and he liked the smell. Peter associated that almost medical waxy plainness with his boyhood, when Dodd was still father and would lean down and smack his youngest on the cheek, leaving a slight smear. The clear chapstick imprint would be invisible and inoffensively tacky. He never wiped it off. It emanated a residual waft of unadorned masculinity, of a piece with his father's folded, freshly laundered cotton handkerchiefs, starched white shirt collars, and cool blue mint breath. Self-respecting men of Daniel Dimmock's generation would never be caught dead with cake batter lip balm. Older and rechristened, Dodd stopped kissing his sons, settling for a shoulder clap or a handshake once they were grown. Thus, Peter associated the smell of that original flavor chapstick with the unabashed adoration of a little boy, not yet compromised by a mature clear-sightedness more curse than means to enlightenment. If only because it was one of the sole props in his possession, they said they'd retrieve his tablet, coats, and carry-on, but no one seemed in any hurry. He ran the balm around his lips, which were dry. The smell was the same, and recalled his father in sharp relief, with a rush of affection this time. And then he knew that he would never wish to launch into a harangue at the poor man's bedside about how the Dimmock shunt was obsolete. The officer who eventually grilled him about making a scene in airport security, refusing to obey an officer's instructions, flagrantly untrue, losing emotional control, Peter's becoming mildly irked, had now transmogrified into flying into a rage, and endangering his fellow passengers, was visible for half an hour through the crack of the office door, exuding that time-killing idleness that in an earlier era would have expressed itself with a cigarette. Foolishly, Peter had committed the one unforgivable crime in the world of air travel, which wasn't, of course, holding a box cutter to a flight attendant's throat, but having a bad attitude, for which he had to make, be made an example, lest flyers come to imagine that they are within their rights to get annoyed. Thus, this wait was deliberate, its length carefully calculated to make him miss his plane. Peter was raised in a family that taught him a great deal about power, especially about not having any, which should have been ideal training for flying from any airport in America in the 21st century. 
TSA agents were deputized with the kind of petty power that was especially horrifying because it wasn't really petty. They could ensure that you would be a no-show at a lecture that you'd been engaged to give all year, damaging your professional reputation and having what would have been a lucrative honorarium withdrawn. They could make you sacrifice your hotel deposit or miss your own wedding. They could keep you from being present at the birth of your grandchildren. And they could most certainly guarantee that you would not see your father one last time before he died. Thank you. Thank you, Lionel. That was, um, that was amazing. Thank you. It's a wonderful story. Uh, so you want thank to sit you. Down yeah, and... let's sit down, sit down, sit down. It's like being in my living room or not. Uh, I, have yeah. to say, I have to tell you that one of the reasons I want to read that story tonight is that I recently got a rejection from The New Yorker on that story. And I was told that they were afraid it was a mere anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> I was so pissed off. <laughs> well, we're in luck then because we yeah. got it instead. Yeah, you, you got the anecdote. Yeah. Um, we've got time for just a very short Q&A, just a few questions, so I'm just going to keep it brief. Um, and then we're going to hear a little bit from the mandibles. Just uh, as a first question, the story you chose tonight uh, I think is brilliant. It also touches on some of the themes which are in the mandibles, the issues of family relations, generation, power, authority. Um, it doesn't have the prophetic nature of the mandibles, but it touches on some of the similar themes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those connections and, of course, the mandibles. Well, the mandibles is, if, uh, if my publicist has failed me and you haven't already heard about it, um, <laughs> it's uh, about four generations of the same family uh, in the very near future that goes through a tremendous... Um, economic upheaval in the U.S. brought on by the um, uh, def defaulting on the national debt and uh, inflation takes hold and the stock market plummets. And this is a family that did have um, a fairly substantial fortune on the, on the way, but it, that money had been for decades stuck up at the top, and this happens all the time in families, you know, that technically you should, you know, you, you should be able to consider yourself wealthy, but you have to wait for somebody to die. And <laughs> the, uh, typically for his generation, uh, the, the patriarch of the family is 97 and, and is horrifyingly hale. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in, writing, um, in writing this story, and I wrote the story after the mandibles. Mm. I'm obviously dealing with some of the same issues of, of uh, inheritance and the passing of the generational baton uh, to the, uh, or not. Uh, and, but what I wanted to make sure to do in the story is not make it financial, because uh, the mandibles is all about money. I'm really interested in money. I have to stop myself and write, from writing money matters all the time. So I deliberately um, eliminated that because it's not what I wanted to focus on. Mm -hmm. And of course, in, in this story, you contain a lot of those big themes in a fairly short story. But in the mandibles, it just is this sort of 
amazing exploration of generational relationships, the family, the, the kind of the hero in it is, is, I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying Willing is the hero in it, who uh, isn't immediately apparent as being the hero, but has this sort of amazing relationship with his mother and with his great aunt, who in the book is called Nolly, who's also modelled on, I think this is common knowledge, isn't it? It's modelled on you. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's this fantastic sort of play between the generations you say and passing on the generational thing. And money is definitely a big part of it, I suppose, because there's this, the, the, gen, the default and the, the debt that's, that's reduced uh, or taken back down to zero in America changes everyone's lives. So the Mandibles, this great family, suddenly lose everything. But the, in this story, it's, it's just more subtle than that, I suppose. It's just touched on lightly. But you know it's there in the background, and it's sort of... It's a, you can probably tell that there's money in there somewhere, yeah. but it's, it's, uh, the author does not choose to focus on it, and the character is not as concerned with the monetary side as, as he is by the fact that, you know, clearly it's a, it's a character who wanted to prove out to his father. Mm. And he chooses the, unfortunately, the worst, the worst moment to finally be a real man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's this quiet little tragedy. And funny. Mm. Um, just before I open up the questions to the floor, um, could you talk a little bit about, we need to talk about Kevin, since we're at BAFTA, um, having your book adapted into film, and talk a little bit about that experience. It was really fun. I had very little to do with it. That was part of the fun. Um, it was someone, <laughs> else, someone else's problem. Uh, I was broadly pleased with the results. There are a few things I would do differently. I wish she'd use more of my dialogue. Uh, mm -hmm. But when she did use my dialogue, uh, and it really came together. I thought the casting was terrific. Amazing. And Tilda was great. Ezra Miller, Ezra Miller was great. In fact, all of the Kevins were very well cast, and, and, and she managed to make it seem as if it was the same person. That's hard to do. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, in fact, the, one, of the, um, one of the things that Damien Barr said on the Saturday Review show this last Saturday was that the Mandibles would make a wonderful movie. And it I really thought, yes, would. It yes. really would. <laughs> yeah. Spread yeah. the word. Yeah. It's a good place to mention it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I just, we have time for a little bit of time for some questions. If anyone has any, um, that would be great. And then we've got some speakers, some moment mics, if anyone would like to start with the first question in the middle there. Well, I'll sometimes have a topic, but that's not the same thing as an idea. And I think part of the art of, a, of writing a novel is to, to know the difference. Um, and it, it, the nature of an idea, rather than a topic, has a sense of uh, direction to it, right? So it naturally develops into something. I guess the, the concept for the mandibles, it started, I started, I wanted, I was interested in writing about debt. Um, I'm very interested in that topic morally because I feel torn. I'm sympathetic with both sides of the equation, but I don't think that people who are, that the, that the creditors get enough sympathy because you're breaking a contract if you welch on a debt. And, 
and uh, someone loaned you money in good faith. So it's, I think it's an interesting topic. But it was more developing a, a plot that would have its own uh, momentum and that would involve, the, the concept was also to tell it through that um, worm's eye view of one family and have, have it be that experience. And so when I put together the family and had a, a sense of what the historical arc was, then I started to have a story. Whereas just wanting to write about the, the, the national debt just sat there. <laughs> so that, I mean that, and I could take you through each book, but that's basically it, that, the, that an idea has a sense of momentum to it. That it and a real idea for a book is something that gives you more ideas. The fall is so great for the Mandibles in the book. Is that something that was key as well, the, the, sort of the fall from great wealth, the big American family, to where they end up? It's, a, it's such a transition. Is that something which was important from the get-go, or did that evolve? I recognized from the start that it was necessary for uh, my characters, at least some of the characters, to have money in order to lose it. It's as simple as that. If you're already poor, then nothing happens. Um, so, I mean, on the one hand, yes, you could criticize me for writing about privileged characters, but uh, I thought I structured it pretty well because there are, there are a number of characters who, who really have very little money because, because of this phenomenon mm. of, the, of the riches being stuck up at the, uh, with, with the, the oldest generation. So it makes it easier to be sympathetic with those characters. Absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting how hard it is to get readers to be sympathetic with rich people. <laughs> it works in the book if you haven't read it. Um, maybe time for one more question, if you'd like, just here. I'm glad that you enjoyed Big Brother. I'd say that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a very different book from this one. And I like that difference. That, that's, it's, it's a smaller book, but very intimate and um, personal to me. Whereas this one has that, that sense of uh, expansiveness and ambition and scope and, and, and crosses many years and has a lot of characters and five different points of view. And I, I just, I like mixing it up. I was, I was glad to go from one to the other. It was, it, it, um, it's like exercising different muscles. Let me just one final question. If there is one, if, yeah, at the back there, great. Oh, I'm, I'm not surprised, because uh, I sometimes read things aloud to myself to see if they work. Uh, I do enjoy reading my work aloud. I can't stand stumbling over my words, and that was not a perfect <laughs> rendition. And so I will go home pissed off with myself. <laughs> but it's your birthday, so you're allowed some slack. No, on my birthday, I'm supposed to shine. Uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, but I, 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 all, all writers don't feel this way. I think it's a lot of fun, and I enjoy infusing it with the, the work with life and, and 
um, and animating uh, a scene and delivering lines the way I hear them in my head. Now, I also concede that that's a form of imposition on the reader so that it makes you hear a line or a, in a certain way. And if you're reading it to yourself, you might read it differently and perhaps prefer your own interpretation. So it's, it's a kind of bullying. <laughs> but I am a bit of a bully. <laughs> I'm pleased you do like reading, otherwise tonight would have been a bit of a disaster, actually. <laughs> well, thank you so much for staying with me, because that is a long piece to it is. pay attention to, and I did warn you. Yeah, and I insisted, so you can blame me if it was too long. Um, OK, uh, I just think we could round up just there with a very short Very, extract. very tiny. Don't very panic. Very tiny. Don't panic. Really small. If you have dinner reservations. I know I do. <laughs> um, the mandibles. So thank you very much, Lionel, again. And thank you back to 195 as well. OK, this is uh, right after the, uh, the president has announced that, that the US is going to renege on its national debt. And uh, my, my character, Florence, is, is, is riding the bus home. Riding the bus home, Florence couldn't resist a scroll through the news websites. Sure enough, they bannered wall-to-wall -wall outrage. By international consensus, the US was now a pariah nation. All over the globe, there were riots outside American embassies, several of which had been overrun and looted. Her country's diplomatic service had ceased operations until further notice. American ambassadors and staff were evacuating their posts under armed guard. Florence didn't think about being American very often, though that may have been typically American in itself. She didn't regard being American as especially formative of her character, and that may have been typically American too. The 4th of July was mostly an excuse for an afternoon picnic in Prospect Park. And she was relieved that next year her son would be old enough that he wouldn't be too disappointed if they didn't go all the way to the suffocating crowds along the East River to watch the fireworks. For years now, it had ceased to be controversial to suppose that the era of the American empire was fading. And the notion that her country may already have had its day in the sun, she didn't find upsetting. Plenty of other countries had flourished and subsided and were reputed to be pleasant places to live. She didn't see why being a citizen of a nation in decline should diminish her own life or make her feel personally discouraged. She was duly condemnatory of various black marks on the U.S. historical game card, the slaughter of the Indians, slavery, but not in a way that cut close to the bone. She hadn't herself massacred any braves or whipped Africans on plantations. This was different. She felt ashamed. And uh, we're signing books, right? Yes. Um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening. Um, Lionel's going to be downstairs in the bar. Do join us afterwards. Um, Lionel's going to be there signing books. Great. So, yeah. Thanks very much for coming. Thanks.